Fast Money starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, are we on the brink of a global banking crisis? Shares of one of Europe's biggest banks, Deutsche Bank, are in free fall. And the company put out a statement that is reminding some of the dark days of the financial crisis. We'll explain what that's about. Plus, Crypto hedge funds fighting back despite the falling prices. And Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital, one of the largest crypto hedge funds, says there is one thing that can save Bitcoin and it could happen soon. He will be here to explain. But first, we start off with what rocked the market today. The trade wars hitting a fever pitch. Let's get to Eamon Javers in D.C. for the very latest on this fast-moving story. Eamon. Yeah, hi, Melissa. The news broke a little bit after 9 o'clock this morning when Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, told the world that the United States was, in fact, moving forward with those steel and aluminum tariffs on Mexico, Canada, and the EU. Shortly after that, Wilbur Ross jumped on CNBC to explain the decision and minimize the consequences, really, for the global economy. Here's what he said. Even if some others do, it still will remain unlikely to be as much as 1% on our economy. Remember, just because they put tariffs on some of our products, it doesn't mean those sales will go to zero. So Wilbur Ross there saying that even if the EU were to retaliate, it wouldn't be that big of a deal relative to the overall size of the U.S. economy. We did get some word from the EU, Canada and Mexico, all of which uh, were announcing moves of their own in retaliation. Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, reacting almost indignantly this afternoon. Here's what he said. The fact that um, the United States is invoking national security measures against Canada, against its closest allies, friends and partners in the world, including NATO and NORAD partners, uh, means that this is uh, perhaps more significant than the administration realizes and uh, emphasized, uh, and we will certainly uh, uh, hope to emphasize that by the seriousness with which we take uh, these measures. So Trudeau there saying that Canada takes this very seriously, taking a little bit of umbrage at the idea that this was done on national security grounds. And I think, Melissa, what the U.S. administration would say in response to that is that they feel it is important to have viable domestic steel and aluminum industries here inside this country in case of any kind of national security emergency, a global war, something like that. Uh, these industries, they feel, are absolutely vital for national security. They also feel, though, that these things can be a useful cudgel politically in terms of the negotiations over NAFTA, all of that in the mix as well here as the U.S.'s approach to China. So a lot of different pieces here and a lot of different moving parts, but the U.S. saying this is simply about national security today on this one, Melissa. Is it a foregone conclusion, Eamon, that these retaliatory tariffs will actually go into effect? The ones announced by Canada, for instance, are up for a 15-day public comment period, or, or could this sort of nudge the two parties back to the negotiating table? Well, I think you heard Wilbur Ross this morning saying exactly that, that he hoped that what this would produce was more negotiations between the United States and Canada. So maybe once tempers cool, everybody has an opportunity to go home and uh, sleep it off tonight. Uh, you might get that more negotiating rounds uh, coming in the future. Uh, but uh, tempers were a little bit hot today as the, as the reaction unfolded to this. Wilbur Ross suggesting, though, he wanted ultimately more negotiations between the United States, Canada, Mexico, and the EU.
All right, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Jabbers yeah. joining us from Washington. So it looks like we're back in trade war purgatory. It is the place where tape bombs and contrasting statements from various officials move the markets a couple hundred points easily. Rallies are snuffed out, sell-offs quickly ending in a maddening grind of fear and greed. And today, no exception. The Dow sinking 300 points at the lows of the day as trade tensions escalate, investors run for cover. So how bad could it get? Is there more pain ahead for stocks, Guy? Yeah, I don't think so. It's the answer to your last question. I don't think there's necessarily more pain ahead for stocks. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, he was president at one point in this country, right? Yes, you yeah. voted for him. I, I, I did. My first time. Yes, a, he couldn't remember. I, I wore the button the whole thing. Yeah. But, but his slogan was, speak softly and carry a big stick. Teddy Roosevelt. Now, yes. we've sort of gone the other way. Now we speak very loudly, and I'm not sure what kind of stick we're... What's my point is, I think the president leads with a crescendo, and then he walks everything back. And I think the market's starting to catch wind of that. I'm not convinced today's downdraft in the market was because of this. We'll talk about that later. But I think sell-offs in name like Caterpillar and Boeing, if it's just solely on the back of this, absolutely need to be bought. It is the poster children of the trade war, Caterpillar, Boeing, but also a lot of the just old-school industrial right. machinery companies, yes. Danaher's, Eaton's of the world, that really right. saw the impact. They see the impact. I mean, you know, markets hate uncertainty more than, more than a trade war, but maybe now we have both. So it's really hard to plan for things that use big industrial products when you really don't know what, what the tariff situation is going to be. That's really unfortunate. I get why they're doing this, because they think trade is unfair. What I don't get is the methodology and to throw uncertainty out there like they do and then walk it back. And then eventually they'll just be crying wolf, I think, right? Maybe we're there already. I'm not even sure. It's unfortunate we have to rely on others to be more measured and, you know, Trudeau definitely giving us a chance to, all right, do the right thing. I think we'll ultimately get there. But, I mean, a day like today, I'm, it's, it was an awful day for me. I'm happy to own puts. I do think that there is more volatility to come. I'm actually surprised the market wasn't off more. Well, and Karen's talking about the uncertainty. How about the fact that the volatility hardly even moved Yes. Today? I mean, the mm. fact that we closed at 1540. Two days ago on the big sell-off, we were actually up at over, over 17, closed at 17, and here we are in the 15s. I, I find that very, very interesting and probably a read-through to what you're talking about, Guy, which is, hey, look, there's some sells with down 300 Monday, or Tuesday, excuse me. We go up significantly on Wednesday, today down once again. And yet this time the volatility didn't follow along. So I find that pretty interesting. I think there were opportunities in the marketplace today, not necessarily in some of the industrial names, but I think there are other spots in the market where things are getting sold off and I think just getting whooshed down. And I think it's still a stock picker's market, no doubt. Yeah, I'm more in the guy camp, and I think everybody's camp here, in that this is part of the negotiating tactics, right? Now, to the extent that they're successful or not, we don't know yet. But so far, these type of negotiating tactics have worked for this administration. So you have to temper a little bit of the fear today with the fact that, all right, maybe this does get walked back. So, you know, I looked at stuff like KSU, Kansas City Southern. That would be the one, right? They transport all the cars from Mexico into the U.S. So that's kind of the epicenter of what would be going on here. Decent support. It was down $3 or so today. But I wouldn't get too scared on this, and I would look to that name to buy if we get any type of reversal. And maybe that's why the volatility were ended up where it was. Uh -huh. I mean, the fact that 
it's been walked back. We've seen this time and time again right. now in the 18 months. So it's a buy the trade war dip kind of market. Well, I think so. I think there are opportunities out there. I think we always, the market seems to overreact every one of these different news right. stories that we get. And we get one every single couple of, well, almost every day, but at least every week we got something. I mean, one week it's China, the next week it's North Korea, somewhere in Italy, wherever it might be. But there's always a news story that's going to be moving the markets, and that creates the opportunity. It's, quickly, it's interesting that Brian brings up KSU, because you go back right when the president got elected oh, is yeah. when KSU troughed. I think it traded below 80 bucks, and we had a whole conversation how this stock is way too cheap valuation. They, they will back off this wall thing. They haven't necessarily backed off the wall thing, but some of the rhetoric in terms of Mexico is going away. Now you have a stock that's north of 100 bucks. I still think it's relatively cheap. And to BK's point, the sell, if the sell-up today in KSU was on the back of this, it was misguided in my opinion. Are there names that you would look at and say, you know what, I'm going to buy the trade war dip? because I think it, it, it's going to be walked back. Uh, well, just one more thing before that. Sure. We haven't seen the EU response yet, right? Right. So I think there's a little more to go on this trade war dip. Okay. Ultimately, yeah, I think there are things to buy. But for me, Boeing was, was too expensive sort of yeah. going into it. So that's probably not a name I would chase. But in terms of some of the old industrial companies, um, you've been in a number of like them in the Like a URI, yeah. which is very U.S.-centric, almost entirely mm -hmm. U.S.-centric. That would probably be a name I would go to. All right. Well, consumer staple stocks getting crushed as the sector gets stuck in the crosshairs of this trade war. But our next guest is making a contrarian call in the space. Let's go off the charts with Rob Slimer of Fundstrat Global Advisors to find out why. Hi, Rob. Hey, Melissa. So it's been a terrible sector. It's down about 17 percent here. And it's come right back to the 200-week, which we find to be a very good long-term trend support level. And it also takes you back into that trading range that you had back in 2014, 2015. So it's getting into a support level. So we took a little bit of a contrarian view and said, you know, what in the, in the market is really down and out that may offer some opportunities? Take a look at this relative performance versus the S&P 500. It peaked beginning of 2016, obviously where the equity market took off and its, its rally. We're two and a half years into a, in a market cycle. We think the market generally moves in four-year cycles. Two and a half years into it. Got to start looking at these down at these levels, given that the relative performance takes you all the way back to where you were in 2007. So huge relative decline. You've given it all up. You're back to some support levels. It's still early. These are still ugly charts, but we think it's time to start looking at a few names. So what we look at, we start with Church and Dwight, sort of a growth manager stock. Back to the 200-week again. It bounced here. It bounced here. Relative strength is absolutely weak, but we're starting to see some signs of a turn. So for a growth manager, longer term, I think you're back to a support level, and it's very contrarian. Then when we move a little farther forward, look at Clorox. Again, back to the lows that we saw in 2014-15, back to the 200-week, very oversold, terrible relative strength. It really isn't a sign of a hook yet, but I think we're getting close. Being at price support, I think there's a uh, mean reversion trade. Looks very interesting and an interesting place to diversify as we move into the back of 18 and into 19, where we think the broader market cycle peaks. And the last name we're looking at here is Conagra. Again, bouncing along that 200-week moving average, long-term support generally. Relative performance is weak, but we're starting to see very early indications that it's starting to turn and put a bottom in. So there's three names. We think they're contrarian. We think as we move through 2018 into 19, as the market likely puts in a much longer-term cycle peak, these are interesting names to take a look at. Should we invite Rob back over to the desk? No. I mean, yes, yes, yes. I didn't mean to say that. Brian will bring the chair in. Thank you, Brian. Joking around. I know. <laughs> it didn't feel like these were pound the table sort of buys, Rob. Well, I think that they is are. Is it just I think, to diversify? I think it is. And I think okay. we, let's take a look at the market cycle. It bottomed in 2016. Everything went up, all the global growth cyclicals. 
Staples were left behind. They were under a lot of pressure. They were apparently very expensive. Now they've retraced all of those relative gains. So on a relative basis, they start to get very interesting. Are they the best trades right here today? No, I think there's other things in the market that look more interesting or in other markets, uh, for example. But uh, I think when you start looking at what's potentially going to happen as we move through 16 into 17, or into through 18 into 19, I think these names are actually at support levels. They're very contrarian. Not a lot of ownership there. I like the names down at these levels. So when you say relative, are you just are you bullish on the market then? I mean, are there on the equity market? Yeah, the, I, because relative to the market, you're saying, would you short the market against them? Be long? I would be long these stocks. Think if you have a no short a, the market. If you're saying relative to the market, these are better than the market. Uh, or do you through, have an through underlying the balance, bullish uh, through, through 18 and into 19? Yes, I do. I think they're going to outperform. Outperform the broader markets. Outperform the broader market as we move again. If we think the market's moving through a broader cycle peak, which I think is developing in the next, uh, call it eight to ten months. And I think you want to own these names. Would you so, own some of these names? Well, so my question, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. To me, XLP looks like a failed breakout over the last month, right? So I'm, I'm talking, let's shorten it up. And we've had this range since the end of April to now, 50 yep. to 48 and three quarters. Yep. Yesterday looks like we had a breakout, completely failed today, and looks like it, it's breaking it lower, right? So that's what scares me about this. What are you seeing that, that would tell you that that's going to be another false breakout? So, or great breakdown? Point. so when you think of these things in intermediate term moves, one to two quarters, You've already declined for a full quarter now through January, February, March, April into the lows that we saw just a couple of weeks ago. And if you put that on a uh, intermediate or a weekly momentum indicator, like an RSI on a, weekly, on a weekly chart, deeply oversold. And as we've gone through the market, sector after sector has been putting in a bottom. I know there's a huge debate about whether the market's topping or not, but to me, it's a progression of lows developing. I think the staples are one of the last sectors to bottom. Rob, thank you. Thank you. Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. Any staples interest you? Homework assignment for the folks. Yes, and I'm going to tell you why. So mm -hmm. Rob talking about staples, maybe be buying here. Go back and look at Procter & Gamble, 1999. Went from basically $50 down to $23. Bottomed out just as the market bottomed out. Reverse went higher. 08-09, go back to there. Stock went from 75 to 50. Bottomed out in March just when the market turned. Now look at Procter & Gamble. Turned from 93 down to current levels. If he's right... And these staples are about to turn. That augurs extraordinarily well for the broader market. Just use Procter & Gamble as your proxy with an X. <laughs> Pete, any of these staples names? The one name that stands out is Clorox. And, and the reason I say that is it was $150 stock. Now it's $120 stock. And I, I take a look at that. And, I, and it has to make sense on top of all that. There is some growth there. And when I look at the valuation, it was stretched. Now it doesn't seem so much. So a name like that actually does stand out, yeah. All right, coming up, General Motors revving up, having its best day ever after a big investment firm, SoftBank, uh, announced an investment in GM. It could mean trouble for one other auto stock. We will explain. Plus, it's been hard out there for Bitcoin ballers. But Dan Moorhead, the CEO of Pantera Capital, who made a fortune betting on crypto, will tell us the one thing that could save crypto hedge funds. And later, Facebook kicking off a shareholder meeting today, but Fast Money friend and tech guru Gene Munster says the meeting was a circus and the stock is dead money. <laughs> wow. He will explain why. We're live from the Nasdaq in New York City's Times Square. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of GM revving up, soaring nearly 13% for its best day ever. Phil LeBeau is in L.A. with the story. Hey, Phil. 
Melissa, this was a big day for investors in two of the big three automakers. Let's start first with General Motors announcing this morning that SoftBank is investing $2.2 billion in the GM subsidiary Cruise Holdings. GM Cruise, it'll be a 19.6% stake that SoftBank owns. They are planning on commercialization by 2019. So why is this deal sparking a rally in GM shares? Evercore ISI says, look, we've got a valuation now on the GM Cruise piece of the GM portfolio, the autonomous vehicle portfolio. And as a result, they believe that the stock could go as high as $47 a share. Also a big day if you're an investor in Fiat Chrysler. Shares moving higher after the company announced that it has formed an extent or expanded its partnership with Waymo, formerly the Google self-driving car project. Here's the expanded deal. Up to 62,000 more Chrysler Pacifica hybrid minivans that will eventually be part of the autonomous drive fleet for Waymo. And remember, they're going to be starting their autonomous rideshare program a little bit later on this year. And that's why shares of Fiat Chrysler moving higher today. And then finally, what's the story with Ford? It moved lower while both Fiat Chrysler and General Motors moved substantially higher. Why? One reason is the perception amongst investors that that Ford is just not at the same level of progress in terms of autonomous vehicles as General Motors, nor does it have a partnership with a leader like Waymo. So as a result, when people look at Ford, even though they are investing heavily in mobility, they are not seeing the level of excitement uh, and perhaps a path to profitability when it comes to mobility that they think they see with both General Motors and Fiat Chrysler. Phil, we also saw a Tesla trade lower by about 2.5% today's session. Is that related to this, do you think? Uh, or is it just idiosyncratic to I Tesla? Don't, no, I think it's idiosyncratic. I think that that's a stock that moves for a variety of reasons, uh, up 2%, down 2%, um, it, it, any number of reasons. It could be people and these continued headlines about crashes involving Tesla vehicles, even though we've seen no additional investigations. Uh, it's one of those stocks, Melissa, you know this, we see this on a regular basis, up to, down to, not a surprise. Yep. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau joining us from Los Angeles you bet. this evening. Uh, in term, there are so many different ways to tackle this, but I'm curious yep. about the Waymo, what it does for the Waymo uh, valuation and also right. for the GM valuation. Yeah, we're interested. Well, let's start with the GM because sure. that moved the most dramatically. I actually thought it was a bit of an overreaction by GM just on this news. When you think about, I think there's a billion four shares outstanding, was up almost five bucks. Seven billion dollars on the news of this two point. $2 billion investment, mm -hmm. which sort of revalues crews. I understand that. But that seemed to me like an overreaction. What I think part of it was is that the market sort of focused on GM now. This stock was ridiculously cheap. It never should have been where it was trading yesterday. And today, I think, was just sort of an overreaction. So the PE multiple went from 6 to 6.7 or so mm. today. I still think that's really cheap. I'm glad to have the focus on GM. And, and to see, you know, they're being very aggressive about the changes coming. Yeah. Pete? You know, I love seeing this investment because now we can actually quantify exactly what it really is worth. That's, you know, the 19% stake and all of a sudden the two and a quarter billion dollars. I mean, that gives, gives people some sort of perception of, okay, what is it really? Everybody can always say what they think the value is. Now we have a better sense of it because it's in the open market. They have the international piece that Ford really doesn't can't compete the same way. 
and they've got the trucks that can go right after the Ford trucks. So a lot of reasons why I did not sell out. I own the stock. I own the calls. I think it goes higher from here. I don't agree necessarily that it was an overreaction today. I think it's been under yes, yes. valued for so long. Yes, yes. I think buck move on this on this 2.2 billion. Okay. I think was too much. Okay. But 42 or 43 is not right. too high. Right. At a 6.7. Yeah. There's an yeah. interesting point made about Tesla in an article that I read, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal. That is the amount that SoftBank has announced it will invest in GM Cruise is barely enough to cover Tesla's long-term debt obligations due in 2018 alone. It's fascinating, right? Yeah. Which, so you say to yourself, Tesla's really behind the eight ball just in terms of their balance sheet and what, right. which has been the knock on this stock for a long time. Tim Seymour makes one of those many points. And right now, he looks like he might be correct. Going back to GM quickly, though, I, I agree with what they're Think about this. GM is still, after today's move, cheaper than Ford. Ford traded one and a half times normal volume, closed unchanged. What the market is telling you is GM is, deserves a bigger multiple than Ford does. I think it's going to continue to trade its way into it. What does that mean? It's got to go north of 45 for it to break out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not buying GM on this news because I feel like, okay, so that was the price. What's next? you got to prove something to me now. Priced in, one-time move. Coming up, Deutsche Bank getting slammed, and the company just said something that has some traders recalling the dark days of 2008. We've got the details. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? $550 billion. Because with today's rally, that's how much Facebook is worth. But tech guru Gene Munster says the stock is dead money. He'll break it down. Plus, Bitcoin has had a brutal month, but a top hedge fund manager who made a fortune betting on crypto says now is the time to buy. And he'll explain why when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. As the crypto market crumbled this year, crypto hedge funds followed suit. But there could be signs that life is returning to the struggling group. Leslie Pickers breaking it down back at headquarters. Leslie. That's right, Melissa. It was a rough start to the year for cryptocurrency-focused hedge funds. Even though they started turning things around in April, it's unclear whether they can capture the extraordinary returns of last year. According to HFR, which compiles a cryptocurrency index, the weighted average performance was down each of the first three months of 2018. In March, the strategy declined about 34 percent. But in April, things came roaring back. The HFR cryptocurrency index surged a whopping 49 percent, its best monthly performance since December. And while that helped to dent some of the losses for the year, the index is still down about 17.5 percent. Compare that with gains of 2,907 percent last year. The recent losses seem to have hampered the number of new crypto fund launches this year. According to Prequin, five new funds were launched so far, meaning 2018 is on pace for about eight new launches. Compare that to 45 launches in 2017. According to a recent report by Bloomberg, at least nine cryptocurrency hedge funds shuttered in the first quarter of 2018. Still, data from Autonomous Next found that there are still more than 250 crypto funds with as much as $5 billion worth of assets under management. So those who have survived still believe that skillful trading and diversification among the more than 1,500 cryptocurrencies can help them eke out returns, Melissa. 
All right, Leslie, thank you very much. Leslie Picker back at headquarters. For more, let's bring in Dan Moorhead. He runs one of the world's largest crypto hedge funds, Pantera Capital, which made a fortune off of Bitcoin when it soared to all-time highs back in December. But um, the hedge fund, of course, like many others out there, saw the darker side of the trend as well. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's always Thanks. great to see you. Um, so where do we stand right now? A lot of people are pointing to institutional investors entering the space as the next big catalyst. Has that come? Have there been enough solutions for institutional investors when it comes to uh, custodial problems and also just the willingness of institutions to invest this way? Yeah, I think that there's an image out there that there's an on-off switch and it's off now and they're going to flick it <laughs> on some particular date and institutions will pile in. We've had institutional investors since 2013 and it's a process. Obviously, risk and reward go together. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of risk, but there was a lot of reward. And we have yet to get to the point where we have an SEC-regulated custodian, which is the one kind of silver bullet everyone's waiting for. But many institutions are essentially buying the rumor and selling the fact, getting invested now so that in three, four, five months when the institution, institutional quality SEC-regulated custodians that we're hearing about come online, they'll already have their positions. Have you been actively trading around Bitcoin positions? And what, what do you, where do you see the value here in terms of the price level? Yeah, so in our view, uh, all cryptocurrencies are very cheap right now. They're down 65% from their highs. At the highs, everybody wanted to get invested. We were At getting, the highs, were they too expensive? Uh, yeah, obviously, okay. in, in hindsight. They, um, uh, right now, they're still uh, down about 65% much cheaper to buy now and participate in the rally as it goes. And there is a good technical indicator that we look at. When the currency breaks through its 200-day moving average, if you buy that day and sell a year later, you make an average of 239%. It's a very simple so let's, strategy. So let's go through that again. Once a currency breaks its 200-day moving average, you buy, and then sell one, year, one later, year later, it's up. It's on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's happened about five times in the past six years. It, once it hits that, if you just buy it and sell it without even thinking a year later, you make 239%. And I think that's the essence of this trade is it rarely ever gets cheap to its long-term average. How, so today is a good day to be buying. How many coins do you own overall? And what's your favorite coin right now in terms of, I don't know, return from, from this point to a year from now? We own about 35 pre-auction ICOs. And then we also own about 25 of the liquid blockchains like XRP, Ethereum, and Bitcoin. Um, we're always trading those around because there's great opportunities. Um, our fund's actually up, even though Bitcoin is down uh, since December. So you can buy any one of the currencies, you know, when it's going up, when other things are going down. And I think the most exciting thing in this space is um, Augur. Augur's going to go live with its prediction market uh, on July 9th. And it'll be the first big thing working on top of Ethereum. And I think that's going to really get people excited. Um, and so Augur Rapid is probably the most interesting currency right now. So, Dan, actually, I want to ask you a little bit about Augur then, because... We saw with CryptoKitties, that broke Ethereum. Ethereum has yet to scale. We're talking end of the year scaling. How is Augur going to work on top of Ethereum if it can't scale? Yeah, so I, I guess I would say it didn't break Ethereum. It kind of grounded down for a right. few days and slowed it down. <laughs> but I think all those projects are, are, are great to show what can happen. And obviously, they do need to scale. Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all those uh, blockchains do five to ten transactions per second. They need to get to hundreds or thousands. Uh, and Augur's going to prompt that to begin happening. It's not going to be great for, you know, uh, initially day trading super active things. It's going to be better for making bets 
on things like sports events or things that happen a few days hence or you know it's not like day trading Apple stock. Has the legalization of, of sports gambling changed your view on Augur? Is there a place or more of a place now that the Supreme Court has ruled that you can have legal sports gambling? Sure. So there's there's uh, another exciting project, Funfair, that's gonna that's just gone to mainnet and it's actually the first online legal gambling site that's been launched. Uh, and there again, I think it's another really exciting opportunity to see actually people using cryptocurrencies to do something beyond crypto kitties, which was a really cute little concept. Do you have a crypto kitty? I don't. You don't? Oh, wow. I was just fully expecting you to say you have like half a dozen or something. I'm short crypto. Short crypto <laughs> Dan, it's always good to see you. I hope you'll come back you. soon. Dan Thanks Moorhead so. of Pantera Capital. You like Augur? Yeah, I do. I love the project. It's, yeah. it's a good project. We've been waiting a little while for that to come on. And I think, actually, these projects are going to force the scaling, right? Because if somebody really wants to use Augur and use it that well and it's too slow, that's going to put pressure, and as much pressure as you can, uh, on scaling these projects. And that really, to me, there are going to be two themes this year, scaling and interoperability, meaning I can send stuff between chains. Those are the big themes for this year. So does your CryptoKitty operate properly on Ethereum? I don't, you know what? I'm short of CryptoKitties, too. Oh, you don't have Yeah, any. I didn't. Well, they were too I expensive. Like a I thought all the ballers <laughs> had kitties. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a hundred grand for a digital cat is a lot for BK. <laughs> All right. Um, if you can't get enough crypto, you can head to CNBC.com. We've got all the details on the latest developments in the crypto space. So do check it out. Still ahead. Deutsche Stank. Get it? <laughs> the European bank in a free fall now down 40% this year. Traders are betting on even more pain for this stock. We will break it down. Plus, Facebook within 2% of its all-time high, but tech guru and fast money friend Gene Munster says the social stock is dead money. He will explain why and tell us which other social stock to buy right now. Much more fast money right after this. Got a news alert on CBS. Eric Chemi's in the newsroom with the details. Eric. That's right, Melissa. So National Amusements just put out a statement based on the CBS shareholder class action lawsuit that we found out about about an hour ago. And in this statement, National Amusements says that they are confident the court will uphold NAI's action, and that action was to exercise their legal right to amend CBS's bylaws, as you can see it on the screen. And they also said that... The efforts of the CBS directors to unilaterally dilute the voting rights of its controlling shareholder are extraordinary, unjustified, and unlawful. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Eric. Thank you. Eric Chami back in the newsroom. What happens if Viacom can't merge with CBS? What happens if Viacom? That's a great question. I still look, Viacom has been cheap and it gets cheaper. That's not a good thing. So I think what happens to Viacom, it'll get even cheaper still. But the question is CBS. Mm -hmm. Tom Rogers was just here a couple yes. times, same week. What did he say? Two times. He said CBS week. is way too cheap. And you know what? At eight and a half times forward earnings, despite all this noise, and most of it is noise, I think it's too cheap. So I think you buy CBS on valuation and Viacom, you have to be a believer, which I have been, but been wrong all along. Switching gears here, Deutsche Bank getting kicked again while it's down. The stock falling another 4% today on a report that the Fed added the bank to its problem banks list. This is Deutsche Bank's year of pain, continues the shares down more than 40% in 2018, shedding about $17 billion in market cap. The news today prompting this response from a company's spokesperson. As a matter of policy, we do not comment on specific regulatory feedback. The ultimate parent of the Deutsche Bank group, Deutsche Bank AG, is very well capitalized and has significant liquidity reserves, end quote. Sound familiar? Hmm. For more, let's bring in our very own Wilfred Frost, who covers the bank's uh, better than most. 
Better than Love wealth. Better than mine. Bring them in. Well, welcome back to Fast Money. Thank you. It's great to be back here. And that was the Sprockets music, by the way. Oh, really? I didn't <laughs> in case, yeah. That was... What is Sprockets? Like that? Yeah. Like yeah. No, Sprockets. Now's the time to dance. But the, oh, anyway. yeah, that's my favorite. I digress. Song. But no, but the share prices, you went through some of those negative sort of return statistics for them. It was actually hitting an all time ever low today as well. And I think part of the problem with this development from, from the Fed today is that not, people don't really know that much about exactly what it meant. Randy Quarles in his interview with Steve Leesman today said as much, said that this is an internal thing. It's actually fairly subjective and we absolutely do not comment on it at all, nor does the bank. And I think a headline like that in a week where people are questioning systemic risk in European banks anyway really led to the share price to de decline. That the people that would argue that the share price fell too much would point to the fact that this is only relating to the U.S. entity, that the U.S. entity is only 10% of total assets for Deutsche Bank, and that it's been in place, this title, this label of being questionable, uh, of being a troubled condition for a year already. So have things got incrementally worse today? Probably not, it's just people are aware of the label. But all in all, this is a bank that's trying to successfully pull back its investment banking in as a low-cost possible way, as profitable way as, as they can. And these types of headlines just make that, that very, very tricky. So I think you've got people writing down the value of, of the investment bank. Today. I mean, the new, you, uh, the new CEO, uh, Christian Seving, has already said that he is committed to the U.S. business, that it remains mm -hmm. an important part of Deutsche Bank. So there's no, there's no point at which Deutsche Bank can say, hey, you know, this is a troubled area. We're going to just ditch this business altogether. And, and I think what really gets investors is that it's the FDIC that deems the U.S. business as financially potentially not viable, which would mean that they could lose their FDIC insurance, which would be a whole world of hurt for Deutsche Bank in the U U.S. Yeah, it's, it's really very complicated, this internal process. And it, although it's headlined by the FD, FDIC, as my understanding of the process is it stems from the Fed. Ultimately, mm -hmm. you have 11 uh, or sorry, seven different categories that they rank them on for this internal, internal ranking. But uh, I mean, the, they're committed to the U.S. business, but they're making cuts here. And I think clearly they, they want to try and withdraw from some areas. And I think part of the slower process is to see if can they sell parts of it before they have to, to remove it. And this makes it much harder to do that in a profitable way. But we, we talk about the U.S. business in terms of, you know, returns versus assets. And just looking at now what their market cap is, it's around 23 billion. It's so small relative to their global rivals like J.P. Morgan at sort of 350 billion. They still actually have quite a big share in, in some investment banking business. They had 9% global market share in FIC trading last year. So there's still quite a lot to compete for, but they're just slipping in other areas. And I think it makes it harder to hold on to the bits of business they do still have. So you talk about the U.S. business, but I, there must be some concern that big troubles of the U.S. business would not be isolated only to the U.S. business, that there may be some cross-collateralization in the bank. Do you know how contained any problems would be? Well, it, this is, again, just this, F, this Fed label only relates to the three U.S. entities, and that's only 10% of assets. So, but clearly things can get contagious if it spreads. But, but I don't think we're saying today incrementally there is more problem here. We're saying that this label was placed on them a year ago, and they've probably been dealing with it, but they can't comment. And they've got plenty of capital and plenty of liquidity, as they did back in September 2016 when everyone got nervous about them the last time. This remains a monstrous profitability issue for the bank. You know, if they are pulling back the investment bank, which is half or so of their EPS. Can they really continue to make profits there and boost returns? You know, this week in Italy, has that pushed back the prospect of ECB rate hikes? And already, clearly, the rate interest rate environment in, in their core market is not very attractive. I think the share price returns we've seen year to date, this week, today, 
again, is just underlining when is this bank going to return to profitability or serious profitability, as opposed to any questions of their capital liquidity. You know, the, the factors that the Fed looks at to reach this title for this label for, um, for, for Deutsche Bank includes things like asset quality, management capability, capital adequacy, things like that. It focuses in the Wall Street Journal right up on the management capability which they've changed recently, as right. opposed to saying, oh, my gosh, they haven't got enough capital or, or liquidity. You know, we look at Deutsche Bank, and I think for a lot of us, we remember 2008. Remember, what could happen when a big bank, relatively big bank, uh, can have problems? We think the worst, right? But you mm -hmm. take a look at the EUFN in today's session. It was down less than a percent, it was like down a half a percent. How could we even... We should well, not utter the word systemic risk in Deutsche Bank in the same sentence, should we? I mean, there, there is a case that you can make for it. It's not so much the U.S. Uh, business, but it's what guys talked about for over a year now. It's their derivative book. It's the largest derivative book in the world. Uh, and then the question is, what is that? And that's, and that's netted out. So, And we know that when there is problems that those, uh, those derivatives get bigger, get larger, right? So the problem that Deutsche Bank, at least from my view, has is that, number one, their core business in the EU, we don't know. There's a lot of volatility there. Not only that, remember, they're also a big lender to emerging markets. A lot of emerging markets, the currencies have been destroyed. Emerging market debts had some problems. So there's a lot of volatility with the derivatives book. That's really where you need to be worried about it. Yeah, I think people at a European bank say, but specifically Deutsche Bank, you're right. It doesn't seem like there's anything systemic. The market suggests that it's Deutsche Bank specific. But I'll say one thing, and I don't obviously know anything about Deutsche Bank's derivatives book, but I will say this. If they have a derivatives book that is set up to be short volatility, and Pete understands what that means, the longer vol goes higher, the worse this is going to do. And I think it has nothing to do with profitability. They could be as profitable as they want. This has everything to do, in my opinion, with their derivatives the, book. The derivatives book and the structured products business within the investment bank is the one part that's still very attractive that I think other investment banks if it's plausible to chop up parts of it, would like to try and pick up because it still drives a huge amount of volume and market share for them. But that's a sort of side issue. In terms of just systemic risk and stuff, Italy was the issue this week, and that's kind of been put to bed. But if you look at what European banks have done week to date, they've recovered far less than U.S. banks. So people are saying it doesn't affect U.S. banks so much. European banks are still question mark. Thank you, Wolf. Wilfred Frost. Well, options traders are betting on even more pain ahead for troubled Deutsche Bank. Mike Co joins us from San Francisco. To break it down, Mike, what you see? Yeah, so we saw about 10 times the average daily put volume today, and most of that activity was concentrated in the August 7 puts. Over 11,000 of those traded, including a block of 10,000 that were purchased for 14 cents. So that seems to be a kind of disaster protection, betting that it could go down as much as almost 40 percent, believe it or not, in less than 80 days. All right, Mike, thanks for that. Mike Co. out in San Francisco. For more options action, check out the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, three big retailers on the move after hours. Costco, Ulta moving lower while Lulu hits a new high. The traders will tell you if they are trading or fading these names. Plus, Facebook's annual shareholder meeting taking place in Menlo Park, California today. Tom Selleck. Um, no, no, Josh Lipton. Yes. Josh Lipton is there. Josh. <laughs> That's right, Melissa. Mark Zuckerberg was here today fielding questions from those shareholders about a range of topics. What did he have to say? We're going to recap it for you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook rallying 2% today as a company held its annual shareholder meeting. Josh Lipton is there in Menlo Park, California. Hi, Josh. 
Melissa, the vote today going as planned. All eight Facebook directors were elected. So that includes Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Andreessen, Peter Thiel, and Reed Hastings. Company also named a new director, Jeffrey Zients, but shareholders didn't vote on his appointment, which will take effect after this meeting. Remember, there was a board seat recently vacated by WhatsApp co-founder Jan Coombe, who is leaving the company. All six stockholder proposals were rejected, as the board recommended. That included a proposal making one share equal to one vote. Of course, we always remember this is a company controlled by its founder, Mark Zuckerberg. Now, he reminded uh, his investors today about the big investments the company's making in AI and security, really uh, rearing a lot of the themes he talked about before Congress and EU lawmakers. He also, though, talked about uh, the company positioning itself for the future and why that's important. Take a listen. We also have a responsibility to keep building new ways for people uh, to connect in new meaningful ways. I mean, that's what people ultimately rely on us for and why they come to our services and the unique value that we provide. So we need to make sure that we keep doing that, too. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Josh. For more on Facebook, let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Um, Gene, good to have you with us. I'm not sure what you made of the Facebook shareholder meeting. Um, I do want to get straight to your take on the stock, though. Where do you stand on it? Well, I think that this is going to be underwhelming. I think this stock really isn't going to go much anywhere. And the biggest reason is the engagement piece, Melissa, is that in the last earnings call, their CFO talked about these new changes to features and privacy that's going on in Europe. And that means for the first time is that the number of people who are using Facebook in Europe will go down sequentially. And so as they roll those tools out across the globe, that will have an impact on engagement. And something else, just to, to riff off of Josh's clip at the end there, is that when Zuckerberg talks, this also impacts engagement, is negative for the story. When Zuckerberg talks about meaningful interactions on Facebook, what he's saying is that passive content consumption is something they want to move away from. That's the majority of how people use Facebook today. They want to move more towards groups and uh, more things that satisfy people, but that also has an impact on engagement. So the bottom line, I think this engagement story is going to be a little bit choppy over the next few quarters. Is that going to be a hard sell to advertisers? I mean, are advertisers trained to think of their ads reaching a very engaged audience versus an audience of X size, whether it be very engaged or passive? Well, they'll still have a huge, a massive audience. And I just want to give you one, one uh, example of the, the size and the use of this platform, which is staggering. As they said, there's 100 billion messages sent every day on Messenger and WhatsApp. That means 13 messages per day for each person in the world. I mean, it, it really is staggering. So in, uh, uh, advertisers love that kind of reach. But on the margin, if that reach is declining slightly, that's negative for growth. There's an article in the journal today, Gene, saying that GDPR would be at least a short-term boost for the larger platforms like a Google, like a Facebook. Do you buy into that, or do you just think that it's just so short-lived that Facebook will still be uh, dead money? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you said the stock's going to go nowhere um, in the longer run. No, that's the words I, I would use. It's dead money. And the issue here is that what, we go back to what their CFO said, despite what the Journal or the New York Times is talking about here, is that if they're uh, warning investors about the impact of uh, GDRP and the impact of these new privacy features on engagement, I think it's something that uh, investors should yield that, that, uh, that cautionary commentary. All right, Gene, we've got to leave it there. Thanks so much, Gene Munster. Thank you.
Well, it wasn't just Facebook rallying today. Check out some of the other social butterflies. Snap rallying 4%, Twitter up 1%. So we thought we'd play a little game of social climbers. Oh, I love this game. <laughs> if you had to put fresh money to work in any of these names for the next six months, mm. which one would you buy? Out of those three? Yes. So it's a social climber. Social climbers. So the thing to do is you answer first and then give the reasons why. Mm, yes. Yeah. Okay. My answer, <laughs> I just making sure I know the rules. Twitter would be my answer. So mm. climb the Twitter mobile. Mm. And I'll say this. Look at what the stock did since that Disney agreement back on, I think, the end of April. Went from 29 to current levels now. You're in partnership with Disney in any capacity. I think that's extraordinarily bullish. I think they finally figured it out. I would be long Twitter here for the next, how long did you say? Six months. Six months. Six months. Yeah. Oh, Brian turn. Kelly, yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm with Guy on the Twitter, and I'll give you two reasons that are different than Guy's. So, number one, the big picture. Every single day, the President of the United States implicitly shows the world how good your product is by using it. Every single day. You can't, you, that, that can't hurt your company. But in the short term, there's a, more of a catalyst. That's the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, mm. the football. Not the kind that Pete plays, the kind you play with your feet in the round ball. That's coming up. Twitter's great for live sports events. Pete. Football. For me, yeah. yeah, the real football. <laughs> For me, it's actually Facebook. Uh, Twitter I sold yesterday, Facebook I sold today, but over six months, I think when you look at 50% ad growth in Facebook, this thing's still growing. Agree. I mean, Facebook, the, the valuation alone is so much better than the other ones. And, yes. and, and Facebook has a history of giving cautionary, you know, cautionary comments about all kinds of things. That's what they do. They like to tone down expectations. Coming up, check out some of the big after-hours movers. Costco, Lulu, Ulta. We'll bring you the latest on those stocks right after this. Welcome back. We've got an earnings whip. Check out the after-hours retail movers. Lulu hitting a new high while Ulta and Costco sink. So let's play a little trade it or fade it with some of these names here. Start here with Costco. Pete, trade it or fade it? I'd be a buyer, so I'd be trading it. I like, I like what their numbers are, and they're down 2% in the after hours after a stock that's been screaming to the upside. Alta, Karen, trade it yeah, or fade it? I'd fade it. I mean, when you have a big high-flying P.E. multiple and they, and they miss, or they're going to miss in the future, then P.E. multiple's got to come down a little. Then it's worth a look, but fade it in the short term. Lulu, Guy. Trade it. Operating margin 16%. Pete and I wear the underwear. Not at the same time. He wears his, I wear mine. Very important <laughs> for the men's brand. No Lulu. sharing. Yeah, it's trade disturbing it. Beaks, right? It really is upsetting. I thought Way we were talking stocks. Up next, final <laughs> trades. Time for the final trade around the horn we go, Pete. Taking a shot on a bank, Wells Fargo. A lot of call buying. Giddy up. Karen. Yeah, in this trade war, hideout, have a taco. I like Del Taco. I, I love Del Taco. And they had big insider <laughs> buying, too. Ooh. And I like what they're doing. <laughs> I, I guess I'm going to stick with that theme, and I think you go by Mexico EWW. Oh, nice, nice. Oh, nice. Look what he did there. You guys see what I did? Yeah. yeah. It's like a theme. Yeah. yeah. What's yours? I'm along the wall. No, I'm kidding. See what I did there? <laughs> Winner, Mel. I'll get you done. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money starts right now.